Amanda, remember that time the world's most famous magician didn't believe in magic? An historical podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Webb. And I'm your host, Anna Webb, and this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out about all their favorite moments in history. And that thing happened to me again where as I was talking, I wasn't sure I was saying panic, the right thing. Panic. Panic. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, thank you all so much for your patience with our last episode. Yeah. It was way delayed. Um, we, you know, we had a death in the family, so it was just, like a lot going on and, um, but we appreciate everybody's patience. We hope you liked the episode when it finally yeah. came out. Um, so, and anybody who sent well wishes, thank you. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but we're back at it today. We are. And I am, um, uh, not sick, but am losing <laughs> my voice inexplicably. It comes in and out just whenever it feels, um, yeah. And this is where I am. This is the life I'm living right now. Classic. So Love apologies it. in advance if we're <laughs> well, sounding kind of funny. It's that time of year. It is. Would you like a drink update? I'd love one. Speaking of that time of year, I'm having some hot spiced apple cider. Oh, I wish I was having some hot spiced mm-hmm. apple cider. Oh, oh, here comes Delilah. Mm-hmm. Delilah, do you want to be in on the drink update? <laughs> no, she oh, just geez. wants to throw my microphone over. <laughs> oh my god she typed into the doc with our notes <laughs> what an Oops. icon thanks delilah love it and there was a giant uh, sound wave on my yeah file <laughs> so i'm having spice cider um i went to trader joe's today and got some fall treats so <laughs> delightful delightful i'm drinking water classic as always we love that okay well, today, we are. I feel like this is kind of like a precursor to spooky season. Because it's totally. not really spooky, but it's like spooky adjacent. Totally. This um, is a September episode. Yeah. Well so, and truly. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the one and only Harry Houdini. That's so fun. It's been on the list for a while. I was scrolling through the list the other day and I was like, yeah. I really want to talk about it. That's how I got Mark Twain. We were going back to some classic ideas this last (laughs) couple of weeks. Yeah, and I almost went with an author, and then I was like, I don't really want to do two authors in the same month. Like, that happens to us a lot. So I was like, we should mix it up. So I decided to go with Houdini. I love it. So are you ready to get into it? I am. Great. Okay, so he is born Eric Weiss. On March 24th, 1874 in Budapest, in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, his family is Jewish. His father is Rabbi Meyer Samuel Weiss. You'll sometimes just, you'll sometimes hear him called Sam Meyer, Sam Meyer, Rabbi Sam Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and his mother is uh, Cecilia Steiner. He is one of seven children. He has four, yeah, he has four older brothers and the oldest of those is actually from his father's first um, marriage. So it's a half brother. Okay. Um, and then he has a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, okay. So on July 3rd of 1878, um, his father moves the family to the United States. Um, they locate in Appleton, Wisconsin, which I feel like is kind of absurd. Like if you're com- obscure, yeah, I mean, kind of random from Budapest. It's like, why would you choose? How do you even know about that place? <laughs> I That's guess. like the most stereotypical move to Middle America from another country. Guess, you move yeah. to a town called Appleton <laughs> in yeah. Wisconsin. What are you <laughs> talking guess. about? It's like that's the energy it gives. <laughs> yeah. Um, so while they live there, his father serves as a rabbi of the Zion Reformed Jewish Congregation. They also change the spelling of their last name from the way the way that it's spelled is W E I S Z. They change it to the German spelling, which has the two S's at the end. Sure. Um, and his Eric's first name becomes like an Americanized or or I guess Germanized um, Eric, spelled E R I K rather than C H. 
Which Why did they just drop the H? I don't, I don't know. Because Eric with a C, I, I think, don't know. Is, makes more sense to me than Eric with a K. I personally. agree, but I agree, but maybe back then it didn't. That's fair. Um, okay, so on June 6th of 1882, their father, Rabbi Weiss, becomes an American citizen. Um, but then he loses his job. Um, so the family moves to Milwaukee and they fall into just like abject poverty. He doesn't have a job. So what they decide to do is in 1887, Rabbi Weiss moves with Eric to New York City. So it's just the two of them at first um, because Eric decides that he is going to help make money. Um, he drops out of school at the age of eight and starts taking odd jobs. So the two of them move there. Yeah. And they live in a boarding house and the rest of the family comes to join them later when they've made enough money to find like permanent housing. Okay. So for a while, it's just the two of them. Um, he, like I said, he takes odd jobs. He shines shoes and sells newspapers, you know, classic. Oh, he's a newsie. (laughs) He is. Yeah. Um, and he gets really interested in... The trapeze arts. When he when he's living in New York, as you he, would, it's an eight year old boy running <laughs> guess, around New York. Yeah, he discovers Coney Island, which is like the mecca of those types of performers. Yeah, um, and he really starts to kind of study them and wants to do the things they do. So, at the age of nine, he debuts as a trapeze artist, huh? and he calls himself Eric, the Prince of the Air. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Eric. Get it? Eric. I love that. That's I'm great. a comedian. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, so he does that for a little while, but he's really interested in becoming a magician. That's what he really wants to do. As any little boy running around New York would be. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um he so he starts his kind of magic career in 1891 and this is when he starts calling himself harry houdini and we will refer to him from now on as either harry or houdini because great i get confused calling him eric because it's not the name i know um so where does the name come from right so harry is likely adapted from the nickname for his real name so as a child they would have called him airy e-h-r-i and probably had more of a pronunciation similar to harry in their accent because it's true yeah yeah um and later on he himself would claim that 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 harry was actually an homage to an american magician named harry keller um but it doesn't really seem like that is likely (laughs) where he originally got it from but you know maybe he kept it for that reason who knows sure and then Houdini comes from the French magician uh, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, or Audin. I'm not sure how to pronounce it in French. Um, so the reason it's with an I at the end be- is because he mistakenly thought that adding the I to the end of the name meant like, quote unquote, like. So like Houdin. Oh. Um, but huh. it didn't really. And also... In Hungarian, the I at the end actually indicates belongs to. So it's still kind of, I think it was like left over from his language and then not sure. translating it correctly to the French. But in any case, that's what he went with. <laughs> and this guy, that French magician was like his hero. He, and we'll of get course. back to that. <laughs> we might mention that again later. So, um, he's performing, he's like a teenager, he's being coached by Joseph Wren at the Pastime Athletic Club, um, and I think most people know this about Houdini, he was very short, like very short, Uh which was not really typical for like a stage performer, right? You had to kind of have a presence, and most stage performers were like pretty tall, um, at least when it came to magicians so he kind of starts to build his image around like the strong men Uh and becoming really physically disciplined that's what he decides the brand is going to be because he can be just like this powerful little guy i'm not like other magicians i'm a buff magician (laughs) Exactly. exactly my thing is being 
super swole. <laughs> My job is actually just swole. Yeah. <laughs> and also magic. <laughs> and also magic, yeah. Um, so that's kind of where and he's like very disciplined in his physical um development i guess i don't i asserted that sentence before i knew where it was gonna end so <laughs> it came out a little weird really got away from um, his physical routines i sure. should say um he doesn't have a ton of success early in his career obviously i mean first of all he's a teenager and he's brand new so you have to hone your skills right um he does appear in a tent act with strongman emil jaro um he performs in dime museums and sideshows. He will sometimes perform as the wild man in uh, circuses. Sure. Um, and initially in his career, he focuses a lot on card tricks. Obviously, that's really traditional for magicians. Mm-hmm. Um, he at one point billed himself as the king of cards. Um, but the truth of it was that he was like, he was okay at card tricks but he did not have that sleight of hand skill like he was uh-huh. not ever going to be one of the best at that um because he just wasn't quite like graceful enough so he starts instead to experiment with escape acts which is of course what houdini is known for everybody uh-huh. knows that um so early in the 1890s he is performing mostly with his brother dash his Full name is Theodore, but he goes by Dash. Um, and they perform as the brothers Houdini. Um, they they perform together at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Huh. Site of many, many other historical uh uh-huh. <laughs> a big um, big old fair there. Yeah, it was a big old fair. It was a big sticking deal. Yeah. And then they go back to New York. They work at Huber's Dive Museum for not a lot of money. Um, and then in 1894, Harry meets a fellow performer, Wilhelmina Beatrice Rayner, or Rahner, um, and she goes by Bess, so we'll call her Bess. Um, and actually, his brother was interested first, but that didn't work out, because um, she was very much into Harry. Um, and they marry, like, I think a c- couple months maybe after they meet, they get married, and they Next. stay together. Good for them. And she that never actually, goes that way. She becomes his new like assistant. She starts sure. appearing in his act, um, and that she works as his assistant for the rest of his career. Um, and they perform, of course, as the Houdinis. And I found it interesting. Um, she was also very short. She was like four eleven or something. Like she huh. was short, which kind of worked out as her being his assistant because it, it made, made him, him look taller. taller. Huh. Yeah, which was interesting. Um, they take their act on the road with a traveling circus for quite some time, and they start to make some money. They send most of it back to Harry's mother. Harry was very close with his mother. Um, it was always said that, like, the person that he was always trying to impress was her. And she, it's not like she was hard on him and, like, hard to impress because she really doted on him they were just very close Uh there's this famous picture of him between his wife and his mother and he's written on it like my two sweethearts or something like that like he was Uh very very close with her okay so they're performing in traveling circuses they're starting to make a little bit of money and he is really working hard on his escape acts particularly his handcuffs act which is exactly what it sounds like escaping from handcuffs right um so he gets his big break in 1899 when he meets manager martin beck in saint paul minnesota and martin is very impressed by the handcuff trick um and he really advises harry to focus it on the escape acts and not really worry too much about other stuff um, and he books Harry in on the Orpheum vaudeville circuit, which is obviously huge. Um, and he starts performing at some of the top vaudeville houses in the country. Now, in 1900, Martin arranges for Harry to start touring in Europe. 
I didn't put the whole story in the notes here just because it was like a lot. But basically what happens is he goes to Great Britain because he's going to be performing in Europe, right? And um, he's trying to convince this theater to book him. And they are kind of reluctant. So he basically marches himself into Scotland Yard and says, lock me up. I will get out. <laughs> and he that's, does. That's good publicity, baby. Yeah, well, we'll get back to the publicity. He does. He gets himself out and he impresses the officers so much that they, like, the theater decides to book him for, like, a month or something. I don't remember huh. exactly how long. That's really they funny. book him. <laughs> and, and then he starts performing all over Great Britain. He does the escape acts, illusions, card tricks, and he kind of starts doing his outdoor stunts while he's touring. Um, he tours in the Netherlands and Germany, France, and Russia. And during this time, he really becomes like one of the world's highest paid entertainers. He is making a lot of money. Um, you'll hear a lot of people refer to Houdini as like one of America's first celebrities. Because if you think about the time period, like movie uh -huh. stars are kind of starting to, to come up, but... This is still he, what entertainment is. Yeah, and he is so well known, right? Uh-huh. Um, I found this interesting. Okay, so he's touring all over Europe. He's calling himself the Handcuff King. That's on all of his, like, posters and stuff. Um, and in each of the cities, he challenges the local police to restrain him and put him in shackles and lock him in their jails, and then he escapes. Um, <laughs> I liked this story. In Moscow, he escaped from a Siberian prison transport van, and he said that had he been unable to free himself, he would have had to travel all the way to Siberia because the only key for what he was locked in was there. That's um, really funny. He did get out, though, so he didn't have to get all the way to Siberia, but he would have been stuck there. That's really funny. Um, In 1904, this is like one of his kind of most famous... Uh, stunts like early on this is probably the first thing that gets him really a bigger a bigger reach a bigger audience outside globally known like, yeah so in 1904 the daily mirror in london the newspaper challenges houdini to escape from these special handcuffs that they say had um taken Nathaniel Hart, who was a locksmith from Birmingham, five years to make these handcuffs. Like, they were intense. There are only, I think, like, five of these kinds of handcuffs, like, in the world or something. Um, so they challenge him to escape. So he accepts this challenge. Um, and on March 17th, he holds a matinee performance at the Hippodrome Theater in London, which is now, like, a casino, uh, I think. Um, and... Apparently, around 4,000 people show up, over 100 journalists show up, to watch this happen. Um, he gets into the cuffs, he goes, like, behind a curtain, and he, like, struggles, you know. At one point, he comes out from behind the curtain and is like, um, you know, the sleeves of these of my coat are getting in the way. Can they be cut off? And they're the people who are kind of monitoring the actor, like, no. So he takes a pin knife and like, does it himself, like while shackled. And then he goes back and he struggles and struggles. And it lasts for like an hour. I think it was like an hour and four minutes. Oof. And then he emerges uncuffed. He got himself out. At one point, his wife comes on stage and like gives him a kiss. And people thought that she like passed the key to him that way. But it's hard to tell. I think that's not as widely accepted now. It's just kind of like a, is that how he did it? Uh-huh. Um, but who knows how he did it. So that was a big one for him. Um, so he's making bank now. Obviously, that's a big event. That would have been bank, just that alone. Um, so with his new money, I just found this really interesting. He purchases a dress that was said to have been made for Queen Victoria. And he arranges this big reception and presents it to his mother, like in front of all their relatives. He gives it to his mom, right? Um, I just found that like a, an interesting purchase to That's make. Yeah. <laughs> that um, he would he, put on a whole thing just to show, like, no, just that's for her surprising. to, yeah. He was, he was like obsessed with her. He loved his, his mother a lot. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? 
Um, he buys a house. He buys a brownstone in Harlem that was, back then, he paid $25,000 for it, which in 2002 is equivalent to, 2022? Or sorry, in, in 2022 was equivalent to $814,259. Ah, uh, 2002. So, yeah, no, it was Simpler times. My apologies. If it were that much in 2002, could you imagine how much it would Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Um, in 1906, he creates his own publication called The Conjurer's Monthly Magazine, and it's a big competitor with The Sphinx, which was like the big magic magazine of the time. Um, but it doesn't last very long. Only like two volumes are released. Um, I liked this quote from magic historian Jim Steinmeier that says, um, quote, Houdini couldn't resist using the journal for his own crusades, attacking his rivals, praising his own appearances, and subtly rewriting history to favor his view of magic. Iconic. I mean, Iconic. hey, if you're going to self-publish your own newspaper, use it however you want, man. That's right. That you go so for right. it. Yeah. As long as the people know where it's coming from, you go for it. Yep. That's right. Um. Okay, so... From about 1907 up through the early 1910s, um, he is performing a lot throughout the U.S. He frees himself from jails and chains and ropes and famously straitjackets. That kind of mm -hmm. becomes a big part of his act. Um, and he starts to perform outside in the streets in front of audiences, which was obviously not very typical, especially for vaudevillian performers. Um, so a lot of people see his acts, which creates a lot of imitators. Um, mm. so he kind of puts his handcuffed act behind him. He decides to move on to bigger and better things because other people are learning how to do it now. Um, and he starts up his new kind of bit, <laughs> which is the, um, milk can. So he basically started, uh, they would get a big kind of oversized milk jug, milk can, fill it with water, and then he would be dunked down into it and have to escape from it. Um, that became his next thing, right? So he started doing that for a while. Um, he also starts inviting the public to devise scenarios and contraptions to hold him. Um, this would include like nailed packing crates. Uh, sometimes those would be lowered into water. Uh, riveted boilers, wet sheets, mailbags. Um, huh. <laughs> and once even the belly of a whale that had washed ashore in Boston. Sure. Noah. Um, okay. <laughs> this oh, no. one this one was interesting. Brewers. Jonah, you mean? Oh I yes. <laughs> Did I say Noah? Yeah. I well, because I then I started I thinking got of, oh God is a god of second chances <laughs> from Veggie Tales, but I was like, that's not Noah, that's Jonah. No, it's Jonah. My bad, my bad. I misspoke. We you and I just went on a journey there. Mm -hmm. different journeys it's late for us to be recording it's very late for us to be recording i don't know what's going on okay now this was interesting so a group of brewers in scranton pennsylvania and in some other cities uh, the electric city the electric city start challenging houdini to escape from barrels that they have filled with beer uh-huh and he starts planning a lot of his stunts like these with local merchants. Oh my gosh. And it becomes sponsored act. The, exactly. It becomes one of the earliest examples of what they then called tie-in marketing, which is Oh just, my gosh. Now we're promoting each other. Look right? at him go. Yep, that's what right. A, what an icon. Yeah. Um famously he is also very opposed to promoting himself as a magician that is assisted by spirits. Houdini sure. is staunchly anti-spiritualist, which we'll talk more about later. Mm -hmm. um, but he is he is really insistent on um, how 
he never claims to have supernatural powers. Uh-huh. Like for him, being a magician was not like, boom, it's magic. It was look at these like things that <clears throat> defy your logic. Yeah. That takes such skill. That That's what we call magic, yeah. Right. Well, and I exactly. think that makes a lot of spe- sense, especially because he's an escape artist, that he wants right. people to be impressed by his skill. Exactly. To be able to escape from these more and more dramatic things. Yeah. yeah. Now, sometimes advertisers would kind of say, like, oh, he dematerializes and he'll, you know, Appear somewhere up. else. Not, yeah. yeah. But he, he never claimed himself to have any, like, supernatural powers. Sure. Um, another big stunt, on September 21st, 1905, in Battery Park in Manhattan, he challenges another escape artist, uh, Bodini, to a- Houdini, sh- Boudini. Houdini, Houdini, Boudini. To a- <laughs> Oprah, Uma. Um, <laughs> Houdini, to Houdini. A- <laughs> to a shackle-breaking match, which would basically entail them going underwater, totally shackled, and race to escape, um, you know, free themselves. Uh-huh. Houdini escapes in one minute and 30 seconds. He emerges from the water freed. Uh, Houdini almost drowns. It's like the task in Harry Potter yeah, when he has totally. to go back to save the other people because they almost drown. <laughs> yeah, totally. Those teachers were just going to let those kids die down there. (laughs) Look, those teachers were just going to let those kids die in a lot of instances. It's true. (laughs) It wasn't just that. They put them down there, and they were just going to let them hang out. They were just going to let the mermaids take them. They literally said, figure it out yourselves. You know? Oh, you want want your friend back that bad? Figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah, and then they all make fun of, sorry, they all make fun of him when he's like, um, they were stuck underwater. I couldn't just leave them there. They were all like, you didn't think they were really going to leave us down there. And he was like, if you're Harry Potter in that moment, when you'd be like, yeah, of course I did. Have you <laughs> hey, seen? have you, hey, have you guys met Albus Dumbledore? Have you been to this school before? Of course I thought they were going to just leave you down there. I die, I almost die here on the regular. <laughs> Every year, literally. And y'all didn't think? Sorry about the Harry Potter rant. Would like to reinforce that we're very anti-J.K. Rowling, but very pro-Harry Potter. (laughs) 100%. We've just, you know, from childhood. Um, (laughs) Okay. Um, Around 1906, he starts showing films outside of, you know, where he's performing his escapes, which was kind of interesting. Like, he would be in them sometimes with other people. And then he would, like, appear. Kind of of doing stunts or whatever. Um, who is okay. sorry? Sorry, who is riding their lawnmower down my street at <laughs> eight ten p.m.? It is dark outside. I can on hear you on your lawnmower. Who is making their way downtown? Girl, it's West Virginia. I Why can't. Them? So, I can't. <laughs> it's the main really road. It's the main road through my town. Okay. <laughs> really on a roll and then we got one distraction and it just well i was gonna have us pause but then i needed to rant about it so okay okay they're gone okay houdini so he starts researching and eventually he writes a collection of articles about the history of magic and this kind of morphs into him kind of quote-unquote unmasking his former hero, Robert Howden, um, and he publishes this in 1908. Um, He attacks uh, Howden as a liar and a fraud because he apparently claimed the invention of automata, automata, um, and effects like uh, sorry, aerial suspension. So uh, what Houdini is claiming is that Robert Howden had claimed to have discovered or invented these things, but they had in fact been in existence for many years. Huh. Um, other like historians or magic historians would later be like, you're grasping, right? Like, yeah. Nothing. Um, but he was the whole thing. He like turned on his hero. <laughs> he had a moment. Yeah. Um, in 1909, he starts becoming fascinated with aviation. Who doesn't in 1909? <laughs> okay, Can, to be point. honest, we're, if you were living in 19, ni, ni, 1909 and people what? were just flying, sorry. 
I'm coming off of a 12 hour day. It's 199999999. And people were just start had started flying giant husks in the air. Would you not also become fascinated with aviation? Probably, although I would That's like half the plot of Kiki's delivery service. It's just that everybody got very deeply into blips. I wouldn't do it though. Oh no, but wouldn't you just immediately be like, wow. Well, it would definitely be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but Houdini, he purchases a French Voisin biplane for $5,000. Why not? Um, which would now be closer to $150,000. Just buying a casual biplane in 1909. Uh-huh. And then he crashes. Of course he does. But then after that, he's okay. And he uh, <laughs> fly. He makes his first successful flight on November 26th in Hamburg, Germany. Thank God he made it. Yep, and then he decides to take a little tour, a flying tour of Australia. And on March 18th, 1910, um, he completes one of the first powered airplane flights ever made in Australia. Fascinating. Now, some places... How did the plane get there? I don't know. He flew it. But if it was the first flight, I guess it was in Australia. He flew it over there and then he flew it in australia i guess also what anyway do you mean? how did it get over there it flew <laughs> right but if it was the first flight i was confused yeah. about where the when the plane got there it arrived in australia and that made it one of the first got it I- i'm confused by your confusion <laughs> i'm no longer confused okay um now some sources will tell you it was the first uh-huh but it actually seems it was more like the third, mm. but still, that's pretty impressive. Um, after he completes the tour in Australia, he puts the plane into storage. Um, he kind of said that he was going to fly it from city to city during his next, like, magic tour. Um, and also promised to leap from it handcuffed, but he never did any of that and he never flew again. He's just like the rest of us for real. He got a very expensive hyperfixation uh-huh. and then put it away and never touched never it again. Never looked at it again. Yeah. We've all been there. Absolutely. Okay, so in 1912, he introduces probably his most famous um, escape act, the Chinese water torture cell. Ah, yes. Which is not a great name. It's not. But it is what it was called, so uh-huh. I don't know. He um, debuts it on September 21st of 1912 in Berlin. Um, He is suspended upside down in a locked glass and steel cabinet, basically, which is overflowing with water. And he has to hold his breath and then escape, right? He's like shackled. His feet are shackled, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The original cell... I just found this really interesting. It was actually built in England where he first kind of performs the escape for an audience of just like one, right? He's doing uh-huh. like a, a one act play called Houdini upside down. And he huh. does this performance with this device for the sole purpose of obtaining a copyright for that particular effect. Interesting. He's a businessman. So instead of like, you know, putting a patent or something on it, he just Correct. made it. A piece he made of it an act art. with a name yeah. that then he copyrighted. That's really cl- a really clever way around that. Yeah, and then he had grounds to sue people who imitated it, which he did do. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, because you don't think about there would have been no precedent for um, copywriting magic acts. Right. Um, it's not like you can put, it's not an invention, you can't put a patent on it. Like, right. That would have been the only such- way to do it. It was such a particular skill, such a particular feat. Yeah. That it was like people he didn't want other people performing it. it yeah. And then I can't do it anymore, really. Um, because he wanted to be the best and he uh-huh. wanted to be like the he, only. <laughs> yeah. So and people did create other versions of this device and called it other things, mm. but Houdini's was known as the upside down. And it, that was copyrighted. So you That's couldn't recreate so... the exact device or do it exactly the way he did. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Another one of his most famous stunts was escaping from a nailed and roped packing crate 
after it had been lowered into water. He did this one in the East River in New York on July 7th, 1912. Um, I thought this was interesting. The police didn't want him using one of the piers for the stunt, so he hired a tugboat. (laughs) And he invited the press on board the boat, um, got himself locked in handcuffs and leg irons, nailed the crate shut, and weighed it down with 200 pounds of lead. Good lord. And then it was lowered into the water, and he escaped in 57 seconds. Wow. Um, The crate was pulled up to the surface, totally intact, with all of the manacles inside. Whoa. How did he do that one? very impressive. How did he do that one? And he used to do these stunts, like, he would... um, do them so like i said he would per- he would perform outside right so he has become like the one of the biggest headlines in vaudeville um and he's one of the highest paid or paid performers in american vaudeville uh-huh. and he like i said would perform on stages and it uh, sometimes but then he'd also go out into the public in public spaces sure and sometimes he would do these stunts right in front of newspaper offices so he would just rig it up and suddenly he's, you know, being pulled up by the legs right outside a journalist's window. Yeah. And of course, they'd lean out and snap a picture. And he, I mean, look, he knew huh. how to brand. You know what I mean? What a publicist. His own, yeah. his own best publicist. That's right. Um, he also then decides to start trying the buried alive stunt. Actually, I'm good. Yeah. Good on that he, one. He does it three kind of three variations of it throughout his career the first time he's buried without a casket in a pit six feet deep in the earth um he did become like exhausted and panicked trying to dig his way out yes um and then eventually like called out for help and like you know he was panicking um but his like his hand breaks through the surface um, and he gets out, and then he falls unconscious, and he has to be pulled out from the grave by all these. Yeah, well, yeah. that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, you know, look, he got injured quite a bit, as you might imagine. Uh-huh. You know, we look at all these big feats, and we think, like, wow, that's amazing that he escaped from all of them. But the fact that he was able to escape from all of them means there were times when he was not very good at it and he had to Think practice. Of all the times he did it wrong. Right, totally. In 1918, he performs one of his most notable non-escape stage illusions, which was, of course, at the New York Hippodrome where he vanishes a fully grown elephant. Classic. He didn't do that one again. Was like a one it's probably too it was probably too expensive <laughs> and logistically probably a nightmare a nightmare yeah because <laughs> it had to go somewhere right was that was so. that topsy <laughs> no poor topsy didn't make it different uh different oh we hate thomas edison on this podcast mm-hmm. two different. episodes in a row we get to talk about how we hate thomas edison we're always talking about how we hate him. one of the biggest villains man. of the piece um one of the biggest villains of our yeah. show along with henry the eighth i'd say yeah I hate Thomas Edison. (laughs) Um, Okay, so he also, from 1917 up until his death, he serves as the president of the Society of American Magicians, also known as SAM, S-A-M. Hilarious. Uh, (laughs) Simple. Elegant. (laughs) Elegant. We love it. SAM. Um, He wants to create a big unified national network of professional and amateur magicians. So whenever he travels, he would find the local magic clubs. He makes speeches and formal addresses. He would throw banquets, um, usually at his own expense. So he footed the bill for most of these. Um, for most of 1916, while he's on his vaudeville tour, he is recruiting. He goes, like hmm. I said, to local magic clubs. Um, he felt like the organization, the Society of American Magicians, was pretty weak. And it was at the time. It was, you know, like a few people in bigger cities. Him like, and a couple guys. Should, right. We should formalize this. And it was formal, but it wasn't expanding at all until he came along. Um and a lot of um, 
groups decide to join. Um, some places would start a group just to then join this society. And eventually he creates the richest and longest surviving organization of magicians in the world. Wow. As of today, it has almost 6,000 dues-paying members and almost 300 assemblies worldwide. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. So he is elected as president of this organization nine times. Uh Uh-huh. And every other president that had served before him had only served a single year. So that's like how effective he was at building it up. Right. Sure. In 1918, he signs a contract with film producer B.A. Rolf to star in a 15-part serial called The Master Mystery, which is released huh. in November of 1918. Um, th- it was This kind of thing was pretty common at the time. It's a film serial, basically, that is then released alongside a novel. So they do huh. this kind of series of films, you know? Um and eventually the production company that's making it goes out of business but that particular series of films lead to him being signed by famous players Lasky Corporation and Paramount Pictures he so he he signs with a studio uh-huh um he makes two pictures with them called The Grim Game and Terror Island love it um, he produces and stars in a couple other films, The Man from Beyond in 1921 and Hall of the Secret Service in 1923. And then he decides to start his own film laboratory business Ooh. that he calls the Film Development Corporation. Um, and I think his brother ran it most of the time, but the whole point was that they were he kind of gambled on a new process for developing a motion picture film. Huh. I don't think it, it lasted very long. Mm. Um, I don't remember. Um, this was just an interesting little quip. In 1918, he registers for selective service, which was of course like kind of like reserves. Uh-huh. Um, and he registers as Harry handcuff Houdini. Full That's name. hilarious. First, middle, last. Good <laughs> middle for him. name handcuff. Harry, middle name handcuffs. As you always name children. Um, Okay, so then in the 1920s, he gets super into debunking spiritualists, psychics, Mm. and mediums. um, Because there is, in the 1920s, right, look, rough time financially for Americans, obviously. And there, there is this big you know, surge of people grifting to make money. There is a big industry that crops up, psychics and mediums and tarot readers that, I'm, and I am not saying that people who do this job now are scammers entirely, because there is like the industry that are scammers, and then the people who like do it because they're passionate about it. Uh-huh. Those are two separate things. But the the group of scammers really arises in America at this time. Uh-huh. Because they're try they need to make money and they're preying on people who are really vulnerable because they are not making much money. Mm-hmm. Um and so Houdini does not like this. He thinks that they're taking advantage of people who are bereaved, they are grifting, um and a lot of other people are kind of on the same page as Houdini. There's kind of a big movement of debunking stage magicians who claim to be assisted by spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's part of that. So because he is so well-trained in the art of magic. Of illusions. Really, like... Of illusions, yeah. It really allows him to expose. He knows what props. they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um He's a member of a scientific American committee that offers a cash prize to any medium who could successfully demonstrate supernatural abilities. No one ever claims that prize, right? It was never collected. Now, again, I'm not saying I don't believe in, like, the ability to communicate with the other side. 
I go to psychics. It's fine. But at this time, there was absolutely a, a whole... There was industry. a market of frauds. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he was very dedicated to proving that they were fake. Um, he chronicles all of his debunking in a book called A Magician Among the Spirits. Um, it is co-authored with C.M. Eddy Jr., who, by the way, is uncredited in the actual publication. Mm. Um, but this is where he starts to kind of develop a friendship with a friendship, a situationship <laughs> with, with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, because that's really funny that he would be uh, buddies with him. Because who yeah. boy, Arthur yeah. Conan Doyle was quite the character. Quite a believer in spiritualism. Big um, time! Yes. So later on, uh, Doyle starts to... He's, he refuses to give any credence to any of Houdini's exposés. Um, and he starts... Doyle starts to believe that Houdini himself is actually a very powerful spiritualist. Um, <laughs> and had performed most of his stunts by means of paranormal abilities. Oh my gosh! And that he is using those abilities to block the <gasps> powers of the mediums that he is supposedly debunking. So he creates this big conspiracy. Delusion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and this obviously leads to Houdini and, and Doyle falling out and they become, the, their friendship is over. That's um, hilarious. And Doyle starts to view Houdini as like a dangerous like enemy of his. I find so funny. But what if you were the spiritualist all along, mm -hmm. sir? It's like it's like when an armchair detective, quote unquote, starts to be like, "Well, I know the serial killer is going to attack here next," and then he does, and then everybody's like, "So you must be the killer," you know? Yes, yeah. yes, it is very <laughs> How would that. You have known that if you were not the killer, right? It's the first episode of Psych. Now, despite all of this, before. Houdini dies. He and his wife, Bess, make an agreement. This is very famous. Most people who are into this kind of stuff know this. They make an agreement, agreement that after he is gone, if he somehow finds that it is possible to communicate after death, Harry will communicate this particular message to Bess. They create this code and it is Rosabelle Believe. Rosabelle was like their favorite song. That's what okay. the title of their favorite song. Um, so he says to her, if I am, if it is possible to communicate after death, I will send this code to you and then we will know for sure. Right? But if you don't uh -huh. get it, I was right, basically. You know? Uh huh. Um, so, you know, after his death, Bess actually holds yearly seances on Halloween for 10 years. She does it huh. for 10 years. And in 1936, she makes this attempt unsuccessful um, on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel. Um, it, it doesn't work, obviously. So she finally puts out the candle that she has kept burning beside a photograph of him since his death. Huh. Um, and then later on in 1943, she remarks on it and says, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. <laughs> <laughs> Which I loved. Work, love um, her. But that that tradition of holding a seance for Houdini, it still happens. It happens every year. Magicians do it all over the world. Um, and the official Houdini seance was organized like in the 40s, but it still goes on. Okay, so that was a little bit of after death stuff. But in our story, he's not dead yet. So let's keep uh -huh. talking. Um, so in 1926, he hires H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. Um, and then his friend, C.M. Eddie Jr., who, who co-authored that other book with him. Um, to write a book about debunking religious miracles. Ooh. It <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be called The Cancer of Superstition. Huh, hard title. Yeah, right? Um, earlier, he had asked Lovecraft to write an article about astrology. He pays him $75, <laughs> which now would be equivalent to like $1,200. Um, but the article, it's... No, it didn't survive. Nobody knows where that article is. Um, he does, Lovecraft does write a detailed synopsis for the book, and that one, it that does survive, um, as well as the three chapters of the, the book that were written by Eddie, the other author. Um, but Houdini 
passes away in the same year in 1926 and it kind of derails the plan for the book because Bess didn't want it to go forward. So mm. that book was never made. Uh, but again, Lovecraft's um, initial synopsis for it and some of the chapters are, they survived. So, um, okay. So also in 1926, he goes for his second variation on the Buried Alive uh, stunt. Um, this one was really interesting. And I put it here, first of all, because of the timeline, but also because it kind of relates to his whole spiritualism thing. Um, he did it in a different way because he wants to expose the mystical Egyptian performer, Raman Bey, um, who had claimed that he used supernatural powers to remain in a sealed casket for an hour. So instead of it being like escaping from being buried alive, it was more an endurance test. Like okay. how long can he stay in the sealed casket? Um, he did beat him, um, on, on August 5th, 1926, he remains in a sealed casket, um, submerged in the swimming pool of New York's Hotel Shelton for an hour and a half. Is that really the same as being buried though? Um, I don't know. The way you receive oxygen and the pressure is different. Yeah, I guess. I don't actually know if the original one was underwater. Or if it I don't was actually know. Um, huh. I'm going to guess it was probably underwater. It was just, it's a variation on the Buried Alive right. act. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he repeats this feat at the YMCA in Worcester, Massachusetts on September 28th, 1926. Um, and this time he stays inside for an hour and 11 minutes. Um, I don't know why you would ever do that twice, but what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, he's also a Freemason. I'm shocked. <laughs> he was a member of the St. Cecile Lodge number 568 in New York City. Um, he and Bess never have children, although they, they wanted children. Um, but they didn't have any. I don't know why. If it was because he was traveling so much or because maybe she couldn't, I'm not sure. But they never had kids. Um, but he does perform for sick children in hospitals quite a lot throughout his career. And he also, okay, I watched this documentary that um, I think it was Alan Davies did about Houdini. Um, and he talked about, I didn't find this written about somewhere, but he talked about it in the doc. And I just found it really interesting that Houdini had like, um, I don't, how do I put this? Made up a child, like an imaginary child. Okay. And he would write to Bess while he was traveling, be like telling her about how he was doing. And in this like imaginary scenario of this fake child, the child like grows up to become the president. I don't know. <laughs> Fascinating. He was a weird dude, you know? Yeah. Weird guy. Weird dude. But but spiritualism is a bridge too far. Uh huh. Uh huh. I guess because I mean, I guess maybe he said like, "I know this isn't real. This is just to like appease yeah. my own." Maybe I don't know. Uh, I don't think he really thought that kid was real. Right, but still, it's like a fascinating yeah no, thing right. to yeah yeah. Now, of course, he's getting older now, and he's still performing these crazy stunts, and it starts to really take a toll on his body. He writes about it in his own journals about how he's just like the work is getting too hard i have to find another way to to do this because i can't my body can't take it anymore and then okay you guys, I just I'm so okay sorry. i just is, i again, read ahead a little bit for this one and um yeah it's weird and it's kind of gross so just I, i'm so this sorry is, bear with me yeah so he starts to look into ways to reverse the process of aging which like is a wild thing. If I can thing. stop my body from aging, then I won't. I can do this for longer. Which is like okay, okay. Um, now he might not have believed in spiritualism, but I think he also didn't totally grasp, you know, like medicine. So what he starts looking into, and again, this is not um, brief. Like he was looking into this seriously for quite a while. Uh huh. I can't, I can't believe I'm going to say these words. Monkey <laughs> gland transplants. Okay. 
Now, he, what would have happened was that <gasps> the idea was to remove the testicles from a monkey and then have them grafted onto one's own. What? Now, what would why, that do? Uh, exactly. Why anyone would think this would make a difference, I How don't know. How is that know. related to the process of aging? I don't know. There were probably people just theorizing about it. But he was right. writing to those people to say, if you're going to do this, I would like to do it. I want to consult with you about it. 19, what is the, 1926? That feels late for this to be a thing that a person would believe in. I know, I know. In the... 15 to 1800s i would buy that he was a weird dude i don't know what to tell you huh i'm just here to talk about the facts and that is a fact of his life truly mm-hmm. okay so on october 22nd 1926 harry houdini is performing at the princess theater in montreal There are some students from McGill University who come to see the show, and they are backstage with him. Um, Jocelyn Gordon-Whitehead, Jacques Price, and Sam Simulovitz. They're backstage before the performance. And Price is... uh, So, really, the um, series of events we mostly have detailed from witnesses. So, Price was one of the witnesses. And basically what he says is that Jocelyn Gordon-Whitehead asks Houdini um, if he believes in the, quote, miracles of the Bible and asks him if it is true that punches in the stomach will not hurt him. Because this is a thing, you know, Houdini is meant to be like, he can withstand anything. So he, so Whitehead basically says like, if I punch you in the stomach, is it true that it's not going to hurt you? Uh-huh. And he, Houdini kind of, you know, gives a little flippant reply that's like, yeah, I can, my stomach can endure it. It, you know, I can endure a lot. And then Whitehead just starts punching him in the stomach. Like, quick, rapid blows below his belt, in his, like, to his stomach. Okay. Um, and at the time that this happens, Houdini is, like, reclined on a couch, right? And because he had actually broken his ankle while performing a few days earlier. So he's sitting before the show, right? Uh-huh. So he wasn't really prepared to receive actual blows to the stomach. Uh-huh. So he didn't brace himself for it at all. He's reclining, so he's in like a relaxed position. Um and he is cl- clearly showing pain and he was like stop doing that. Uh-huh. Um and he says like I didn't have an opportunity to prepare for this. Um, and I wasn't really expecting you to strike me so suddenly and so forcefully, right? Uh Uh-huh. So he's in some pain, but he performs anyway. Um, and then that night he can't sleep. He's in constant pain for the next couple days, but he doesn't seek medical help. Okay. And then he finally sees a doctor after a couple days, and he's found to have a fever of 102 Fahrenheit. Ugh. And acute appendicitis. Oh, my gosh. Um, And they advise him to get surgery. Obviously, he has acute appendicitis. He needs surgery. And he decides, no, I have a show to do, so I'm going to go perform my show. So on October 24th, he performs at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan. Um, this This becomes his last performance. He does the whole performance with a fever of 104. Oh, um, he's reported to have passed out during the show, but then is revived and then continues. Oh my God. Yeah. He finishes the show. Um, and then afterward he is hospitalized at Detroit's Grace Hospital and he dies on October 31st at the age of 52. So he dies on Halloween, which is part of why the seances are Halloween. Right. Halloween. And also cause it's spooky. <laughs> um, <laughs> now it's not really can't be totally proven that the dressing room incident incident was his cause of death because uh-huh. it is totally possible that he already had appendicitis and like didn't know it um and didn't realize you know, it until he got hit in the stomach and he was when the pain kept happening and he was like pain. that's weird 
Right, right. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, he was probably just in pain in general. So any kind of like mild kind of starting he off, probably wouldn't he have noticed noticed right he wouldn't have noticed the early stages of appendicitis right so if you hear like jocelyn whitehead being referred to people will first will refer to him as like the man who killed houdini and it is possible yeah it's possible that he did but we just can't really know for That's sure such a, what a strange little series of events yeah right yeah it's a famous story most people yeah. will if you ask how houdini died they'll be like he got punched in the stomach and then uh-huh. And it burst his appendix. That's what people will say. Yeah. Which um, is kind of true, but kind of not. But but maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. So they hold his funeral on November 4th, 1926 in New York, and more than 2,000 people show up. Uh-huh. Um, he is interred at the, I'm going to say this wrong, Macpella Cemetery in Glendale, um, in, Cle- in Queens. Um, and the crest of the Society of American Magicians is inscribed on his gravesite. Uh-huh. Um, they add a statuary bust to it in 1927. Um, and this was very rare because, again, if you remember, he is Jewish. Uh-huh. And typically, um, images like that are not allowed in Jewish cemeteries. Um, but they allow it, I guess. Oh, he was extra special and God's favorite, he, so. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> God's favorite. Harry Houdini, God's favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> in uh, 1975, the bust is destroyed by vandals. Mm. Um, temporary busts are, are put there for a while, um, up until 2011, when a group of people um, who come to call themselves the Houdini Commandos, <laughs> um, they um, are from the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania. They place a permanent bust there with the permission from his family. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. Um, couple interesting things here. On March 22nd, 2007, um, his, Houdini's grandnephew, who would have been the grandson to his brother Theo that used to perform with him. Um, so he, George Harding is his name. He says that the courts are going to be asked to allow an exhumation of Houdini's body because he wants to investigate the possibility that Houdini had been murdered by spiritualists. Um, This was a theory that uh, was suggested in the biography called The Secret Life of Houdini. Um, But Bess Houdini's family strongly opposed this because this was very like conspiracy theory. Yeah. Right. Um, and they were basically like, this is just a big publicity ploy for this book. Like that did not happen. We don't want you exhuming his body for a conspiracy theory to sell your book. Right. Um, but it never happened. That Okay. In 2008, they basically said that, Nobody had actually filed the papers to perform an exhumation, mm. so it it just died, basically, that theory. Okay, so after his death, his brother, Theodore, inherited all of his effects and props. And Houdini's will stipulated that all of that stuff, after his brother's death, should be burned and destroyed. Um, But his brother ends up selling a lot of it to... um magician and Houdini enthusiast Sidney Hollis Radner in the during the 1940s um, including the water torture cell mm-hmm. um, Radner puts a lot of the pieces um, on display at the Houdini Magical Hall of Fame in Niagara Falls Ontario and then in 1995 a fire destroys that museum uh. um, the metal frame of the water torture cell remained so that part survived um and it was later restored by illusion builder john gogan or goggin um but a lot of the other props um also survived some of them were destroyed obviously but the ones that survived were the mirror handcuffs his original packing crate a milk can a straight jacket um and those were all auctioned off in 1999 and then some in 2008 Mm. um on october 31st 1975 he is posthumously given a star on the hollywood walk of fame 
And then the Magic Castle in LA, which is a very famous mm-hmm. magic clubhouse, basically, um, <laughs> is um, it features a Houdini seance um, performed there by magician Misty Lee. Correct. Wow. That's Houdini. That's a good one. A lot going on. With what a guy. dude. What, what a, a dude. dude. Truly. He's something else. Yeah. So I feel like that was like our precursor to spooky season. Absolutely, yeah. With all the Lightly. Seances and Lightly Halloween. spooky. Yeah. Spooky spooky light. <laughs> spooky adjacent. Right, exactly. So, guys, spooky season is finally here. Yeah. So, um, I think we kind of have an idea of what we might want to do. But we haven't really formalized it yet, so we're not going to say, just yeah. in case we change our minds last minute, which we, we might do. <laughs> Who's to say? Um, so I hope you enjoyed this one to get ready mm-hmm. for our favorite time of year. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I like your little thought. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if anyone has suggestions for things we might do after spooky season, um, or for future spooky seasons if you want you can email those to us at remember that pod at gmail.com and you can also find us on um, instagram and threads at rtt pod um, i guess you can find us on facebook too if you want and we would love it if you would leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast um, if you would like to find me on the internet i am at the real anna webb and i'm at acw nerdfighter Woohoo. I feel like we did. that one felt I... a little bit like a marathon to me. <laughs> I'm why. just tired, man. Yeah, me too. It's late. Oh my god, it's late. Okay. Uh- <laughs> we gotta wrap this up. <laughs> oh my god, it's late. It's so late. It's so dark out. Okay, so um, spooky season's coming, so um, until next time. <laughs> Remember that time. <laughs>